are uh, starting on, uh, continuing on actually in our series Wannabe, and obviously there's lots of us who can be wannabes in different way. I want to just welcome you guys here to Olive Branch today, and all of you who are watching online. We're just excited that we can uh, get into the Word of God. In fact, when I when it comes to wannabes and thinking about people that we we look towards and, and are excited about, I think of one fateful trip my wife and I had when we were kind of younger. Um, we'd been married for a few years, and I was a youth pastor, so I didn't make a lot of money. And my um, my wife wasn't working at the time because we were going to be we were doing kind of homeschooling gig, and so there's just all kinds of pressure on trying to figure out well, what are we going to do for our vacation. We had a friend who lived in Boston. He was going to Harvard University. And we're thinking, oh, it'd be awesome. We can go see Harvard, see this out. So we started examining everything and realized the best way we were possibly going to get from California to, um, to Boston was by going by Greyhound bus. That was the cheapest route. So we literally boarded a bus in Riverside and for three days and three nights, we journeyed all the way across the United States to Boston. And awesome time. My friend there, he was a great host and it was a, such an interesting journey. I mean, I literally met gang members from Chicago that were moving to New York to, to redo their life or join a different gang. He couldn't figure out which one yet. And we were, um, you know, sharing the gospel with him and talking to him. We, we uh, got to sit next to all kinds of different sized people and in a bus that matters. And so it's just all kinds of interesting experiences. I never, ever once felt scared or uncomfortable, even when we were on the Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, where they just let all the guys out of prison and they were sitting on our bus joining us to come to the next, uh, to the next state over in, in New Mexico. In fact, they argued for us to get back on the bus. They were trying to keep us off. The only time I ever really felt nervous that my life was in jeopardy, quite honest, was when we, when we pulled through San Bernardino and everybody got on board. It was, it was the scariest moment of the entire, people were looking at me like, what are you doing on this bus? I'm like, I've been on here since Boston. Leave me alone. It's just, it was weird. But in Boston, there was one of those experiences that was semi-disappointing, actually. We got there, and my friend Chris set us up with this particular professor. I'd been reading all of his books. I had gotten really into kind of his thinking. It was the kind of guy I wanted to get to know and kind of wanted to think like and thought maybe, man, this guy really understands our culture. And so we get to go out there, and he sets up, and we sit down in the room, and Chris introduces me, and we kind of begin this conversation. And quite honestly, this professor just looks at my friend because he's trying to figure out, does he want to go to Harvard? Does he want to go to Yale for his doctorate? And he's like, oh, you know, you've got to go to Yale, my good friend. It's just like, he starts dropping all these names and talking about all these people in Yale and why Yale is going to be so much better for you than Harvard. And I mean, literally, this is how he sounds. I'm not making it up. And he is sitting there talking to my friend for the next 30 minutes about all the people he knows at Yale. I'm like, well, and, and my Chris is like, well, um, he's here. He wants to talk to you. And so I ask him a couple questions and then he kind of waxes eloquent on the questions, drops a few names, turns back to my friend, explains why Yale's still better. And then finally, in the end, I go, okay, that's nice. Great. Thank you. Hey, so what do we do about all of this information that you've gathered and you discovered? And he says, I don't know. I'm just writing the books. I have no idea. And right there, I realized I have wasted my time. And I haven't read his book since. He's done a curriculum and stuff. And I'm like, he has no answers. Why am I looking at this? In fact, it was an example of one of those times where you have this person you want to be like, this way that you want to think, maybe this individual you're excited about. And in the end, all they do is disappoint you. You ever been there? Where you have that person you've looked up to and you finally get connected with them. You're like, oh, that wasn't what I thought it would be. That's not the, job, the way the job I thought would go. That's not the way I thought this mentor would mentor me. 
Maybe some of you woke up when you became a teenager and you thought, you know, we all idolize our parents when we're kids. And then you get to that teenage years, you know what I'm talking about. And you're suddenly like, my parents are just grown up teenagers like all my other friends. That's what I realized when I got into adult ministry. You're all just a bunch of teenagers. You just hide it better. So I'm sorry, I'm insulting you. I'm just the... uh, but the, the, the point to me is there are these moments where we think we want to be like someone and then we approach them and realize they're not who we want to be. And I think some of us actually feel that way about God. Some of you explore the Bible and you got so far and nobody kind of helped walk you through the theology or the ancient concepts in the Bible because it's a, it's a time out of place. It's not like the United States. And you've looked at this God and thought, I don't want to be like that God. You read about Jesus and you think, yeah, he's awesome, but I don't know if I have to take on this Old Testament God or I have to take on this other idea. I, I just don't know how to do this. This isn't who I thought he would be. The church isn't what I thought it would be. These people aren't like I thought they were. They're not really who I really want to be like. And maybe you've left the church and you come back, or maybe you're given another shot, or maybe you're, you're beginning to explore and you're just not sure. Maybe God's not really who I want to be like. Maybe Jesus isn't really who I want to be like, because when I'm finally meeting him, I'm going to be disappointed. And I just want to help you guys. I think a lot of people feel that way. But the danger is that we fall into one of those two traps when we walk away from Christ, fearing that when we get to know him, it's not going to be worth it. And those two traps, again, as we looked at last week, is you fall in just following yourself, which leads to all kinds of sin and destruction and brokenness and corruption. Or you end up binding yourself up in rules where you're going to be good and, and, and do good, and I'm going to be safe if I just stay in these rules. And so maybe you've opted for a religion or a bunch of rules in your life to keep you safe, to keep the people around you safe, and so you can be good and do good. And what you're missing out on is actually an opportunity to be transformed from the inside to become the kind of person that you really want to be like. I want to argue that Jesus actually won't let you down. I actually believe that as you get to know what he is like and who he is, it will begin to transform the way that you are amongst other people and the way that we are with each other and in this world. But that doesn't happen with rules, and doesn't happen with being good and doing good, and doesn't happen by yourself naturally. Rather, as we've said, it comes from following the lead of the one that we want to be like. Once Jesus has cleaned up the mess that's between us and God, from our own mess and sin and evil, once Jesus wiped that up, brought us in reconciliation to God, now we have a relationship with God in which he literally moves into our lives to lead us forward. And when we want to be like Christ, we want to be like God, we want to have these kind of attitudes and be more patient and kind and loving, then what we need to do is follow that lead. Now, it's found, this idea is found in Galatians chapter 5. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul. If you want to grab a Bible, open it up there, open your app up, and you'll find it there in, under the message notes or in the Bibles in the room on page 974. So you can join us either with your own Bible or you can join us in this, um, in this room with these things. Now, Galatians, again, is written by a man named Paul. He, he planted these churches. He's trying to warn them away from getting locked into legalism or, or running around just thinking I can put a slap the name Christian on me and go do whatever, whatever I want. He says, no, no, no. This, there's something special going on in Christianity. In Christianity, God cleans up the mess, and so he can move into your life and literally lead you. And so we see this here in verse 16. It says, but I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In fact, two verses down later in your Bibles, it'll read, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And so on one side, you're not going to be bound up by rules and law if you follow the Spirit. On the other side, you're not going to just give in to all your fleshly desires. Neither of those two things come from this 
following, this walking by the Spirit. Spirit leads you. And this is the very presence of God in your life. This is the very presence of the living God who exists, who speaks to you, who speaks through his word, who you relate to as you speak to him in prayer. In this beautiful conversation and relationship, he guides and leads you in life and will form in you the character of Christ. In fact, that's the point as we look at verses 22 and 23. He says, if now you're going to follow, you're going to walk by the Spirit and do all these things. And so the fruit of the Spirit, what is born from the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So it's not going to produce all this nasty stuff that he just talked about, the works of the flesh. No, it's going to birth this fruit in your life. And in my studies, as I did my master's degree on, on this particular verse itself, actually, this is the character of Christ. You are looking at a list that explains what Jesus is actually like, that he's a loving, kind, patient, joyful, peaceful, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled individual. And the very presence of God is in you to make that happen you. Now you look at that list and you look at yourself and I look at myself doing this all week and I go, there's a big gap. There's a large gap between me and that. And there's a large gap in my understanding as well of these things because let's face it, these are all odd characteristics to really grapple with in our culture. And and what we're going to do is we're going to take these bit by bit and we're going to take a few of them at a time and kind of open them up through the rest of the series to talk about, well, how do we know if the Spirit's bringing these about in our lives? What does it look like and how does that happen? And so we're going to start today with two biggies, love and joy. And so we're going to aim in at this conversation of love and joy. And I'm going to argue that what we want to do is follow the Spirit and then you'll know true love and you'll understand true joy, true love. No, not that kind of true love. We'll get into this in a minute because our culture is confused about love, right? No, I guess we all know what love is. Sweet. I, I, don't, think we, I don't think we do. Uh, in fact, what's interesting to me is how often we use the word love. It's so ambiguous. We used to have terms like charity. We used to have terms like love. And then you, you had romance. You had different terms that we had for love. But nowadays, we just use love. It's like, I love my wife and I love God. You know what? I love my dog and I love pizza. You know, is that the same in every context? No, obviously not. Yet sometimes I wonder in our culture, some people who are really excited about pizza and not totally excited about their wives. And it's kind of weird. But love is, is a fickle thing, we say. But love, if you boil it all down, we don't know what we're talking about. Love is this out of control force that just comes upon me and I fall into it and then I fall out of it. And so love has this very odd combination of thought. If you were to boil it down, you can see that it falls in two pitfalls. On one side, there's a sense of love that we have when somebody loves us. You can totally see this in politics. On one side, there are people who love Donald Trump, and there are people who love Barack Obama. There are people who love Jimmy Carter, and people who love Ronald Reagan. And I'm serious, they say love. They don't just say, I like. They say, no, I love this guy. This guy's doing everything I want him to do. This is awesome because they are doing the things they believe in. And when somebody's doing the things that you want them to do, man, we love them. They're awesome. Same thing is true when you're driving a car. I mean, one of my most frustrating moments in life in Corona, living in the valley, is trying to get 
anywhere, right? And so we're in the car, and we're driving down maybe Timiskel Canyon for me, and I always manage to find the person who drives the speed limit. I think that's the worst for me. <laughs> because they, they hit the speed limit, and let's cruise the speed limit. Perfect. And you're like behind them going, you don't have to go to the speed limit. I don't see any police officers around here. Everybody else wants to go 55. See how many cars are behind me? Come on, dude. You're being an idiot. Come on, speed up, speed up, speed up. And the sad thing is my kid's sitting next to me and eventually they go, what's wrong with this idiot? I say, son, you don't call him an idiot. I know what I'm saying. You be nice. <laughs> Isn't that true? Actually, what's weird is I'm just being unloving. They're not doing what I want them to do, and so they deserve my scorn and wrath. Not my love, not kind and gentle, caring words that value them at the right. No, they're a car in front of me. They're an object now. And I don't give love to an object. My kids start speaking, and it's very clear those are unloving words. And I go, ooh, that's not right. And this is the reality. When somebody's doing what I want them to do, when they're in my in-group, yeah, I'm going to love them. They're part of me. They're in my church. They're, on my, they're, they're part of us. And yet at the same time, love has got nothing to do with the end group. There's this case where there are these people that we meet and suddenly we feel this thing come over us and we got to sing a song. And since Aretha Franklin just passed away, we can say like, I'm not going to sing You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman, but you know the idea that there's this, there's this power of energy that comes over you. It's like, oh, the way you make me feel. And we sing how much poetry and write how many songs songs and how many sonnets about the way that you make me feel that's love. Oh, you don't make me feel that way anymore. I must not love you anymore. Or how many of our marriages are running for compatibility, all these rules, just to get that old feeling back again? Huh. We seem to be confused about what love is because neither of those definitions fit the love that we read in the scriptures that God is pouring into us. The very presence of the God who is love is using in us. Now, those two loves are true. I mean, come on, they're not, non, they're not experiences that aren't true. But this isn't what we're talking about here. When we talk about this love, the apostle is using a term called agape. When he says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's a particular kind of thing. And I think the one who is love, who came to express that love and show us love, should explain it to us best. And so we're going to take three scriptures, three times that Jesus mentions love, and we're going to try to pull out of it what Jesus is getting at, what kind of, what this Jesus love looks like. Starting here, in the night of his betrayal and, and before he is crucified, he, he he says this to his disciples as they're traveling on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He explains the greater love has no one than this. You cannot possess any greater form of love. This is the apex of all love. That someone lay down his life for his friends. The apex of all love is that for your friends, you would be willing to die on their behalf. For someone else, you'd be willing to give your life over to them. In other words, I think Jesus is saying two things. Number one, love is selfless. It's not about you. It's about the other. It's about whether they're their friend, as we'll see, it kind of expands from here. But it's about the other, not about you, not how you feel, but it's about other people. That you'd be willing to even spend your life on them. Notice that word lay down his life means you'd be willing to die. You'd be willing to pay a sacrifice. And when we really get into love, love is not some rules and set of guidelines and, and compatibilities. And it's not how you make me feel. Jesus says, no, actually, it's your willingness to, to pay the cost for other people. 
Love is costly. True love, the way Jesus does it, costs us greatly because you have to make a sacrifice. If you're going to really make a difference in this world, you're really going to see the love of God flow through you. You're going to find it's going to take up some of your time. You're going to find that you're going to have to sacrifice moments or you're going to have to sacrifice finances or you're going to have to sacrifice some kind of emotion or reputation because this is what Jesus did. When Jesus shows up, he leaves all of heaven and all the power of being God to come down and be a human and be raised by a teenage girl in a situation in which he would have been, she would have been blamed for adultery. When he shows up and grows up, he comes along and he doesn't just sit with the elites and the power brokers. No, instead, he meets with sex workers. He sits down with alcoholics and partygoers, with treasonous, money-grubbing tax collectors. And he makes them his friends. And he invites them to eat with them. He walks up to the oozing, pussing skin disease lepers and he touches them and cares about them and he heals them because he knows it's going to cost him to love others. It's not about what he gets. It's about what he gave so that even on the cross he would stand, hang there and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The sacrificial love of Jesus has been the defining mark of the church and it's given in such a manner that it was revolutionary, unknown prior to Jesus. This kind of love starts flowing out of humanity into this world to make a difference. Because it wasn't about what I got. It wasn't about how you're in my in-group. No, it was about the cost and being willing to give it. Jesus can, gives us another insight into what love is. And the great two great commandments, the first one being love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is a kind of love you will have in the fruit of the Spirit. But in this case, what you're looking at is a love of your neighbor as yourself. One of our preaching team members who were talking about this said, hey, I love this quote from Luther. And, and, and basically it's summed up to Martin Luther as he's preaching on this verse in his congregation during the Reformation tells people, you don't need any instructions on this one because you all know how to love yourself. You already have all that you need. Now, I heard from certain pastors out there, they go like, it's our culture, our generation's the first culture ever not to know how to love themselves properly. That's just wrong. Yes, the suicide rate is high. Yes, there is ma there are, there's clinical depressions and there's all kinds of stuff rising in our culture. But there was just as many suicides and messes and the, the humanity has been broken in their brain since Genesis chapter 3. And I want to just take a second to identify a difference here. When I'm saying that we are to, to love each other as ourselves and we think of, oh, what about people who commit suicide and stuff like that? There are people in this world whose brains are sick. Can we just acknowledge as Christians we do not believe that we are our brains? Isn't that true? You're not your brain. You're a soul, your spirit dwelling within your body. Your brain is an organ and sometimes our brains get sick and yeah, we need doctors and we've identified chemicals that can aid us and help us. And many people who will enter in and get the right kind of medical help for their brain as they would get medical help for their heart actually begin to move spiritually because everything's right chemically. Now God works on the soul powerfully. And so don't knock yourself if you're in a situation like that or you know somebody like that. Encourage them to get help. Encourage them to get A before it gets worse. And it has nothing to do with how they love themselves because even in depression we all love ourselves. We get up or we sleep or at least we hope 
that the depression will lift. We hope that this will end. We hope that we will get to another brighter, more beautiful day. That's a love of yourself. Do you hope for your neighbor that they would have a better day tomorrow than they had today? Do you hope for, for your neighbor that they might have income when they don't have any? Because you'd hope that for yourself. Do you hope that they might get out of their chronic pain because you're in the middle of it? Do you hope, because this is the essence of love, the thing that you would do for yourself, you would do for others. And I'll tell you what, I, I've been through my closet. We, like I said, many of us just, some of us just evacuated from our homes. And you went through your house looking at all your stuff going, wow, you know, there's one person I spend a lot of money on and that's me. I spend most of my money on me. Isn't that true? Whether it's the food I eat, the clothes I wear, the stuff I enjoy, I spend money on me. Now, when we spend money on us, Jesus is saying, think about it. If that's how you love yourself, then the way that you spend money on others to care and bless them and lift them up, maybe to clothe them, to get them food, to aid them out, is a a sign of how you love others. That's why when we do a tithe and we do offerings and stuff, this isn't just about oh, you know, we're just collecting money to make money for the church. No, it's about how do we use this rightly. That's why we consider maybe 18-year-old carpet would be better if we just ripped it out, didn't have to replace it, and just made concrete floors. Maybe it would look cool and look good and be cheaper because we want to use more money for the sake of reaching and helping people. We want to use more money for the sake of spreading the gospel that transforms souls and keeps them from hell. We want to see that as we pool together for the love of others. And this is important if we distinguish the difference between paying for something and becoming people who understand we're working together to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. This is what James Project is about. It's why we endorse it so heavily and why we created it. We want to love people who are in difficult places as we would hope we would be loved, to treat others as we want to be treated. So Jesus says it's not just simply about your, your friends. It's about your neighbors. It's not a selfish love, it's a selfless, sacrificial love that honestly extends even beyond that. He says to us, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it's not just about your in-group now. Suddenly, that person who, who loves Donald Trump and hates Barack Obama has to ask themselves a question or vice versa, loves Barack Obama and hates Donald Trump or, or Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, whatever era you're into. Um, if you're in that position, can you step back to love a person as a human being regardless of what they have said or what they have done? Can an evangelical Christian church, an evangelical like you, sit down across the table from an LGBT activist and love that person for who they are and not for what, they don't, what they've done and what they stand for? That doesn't mean you, have to, you agree with their position or anything or, or change your own, but can't we love people for being made in the image of the creator who made you and made me, the one that we claim we worship? And this is the love that Jesus says. you got to love your enemies like you would love your friends. you got to love your enemies like you would love your neighbor. Because the greatest love is a self-sacrificial love that's not about you. It's about investing in other people to make them better as Jesus did for us. And this very love, though it does not look like it comes out of us sometimes, you may be judging yourself and give yourself a break for a minute. Because that very love lives in you. And the very one of that love is calling and guiding you toward it. We'll get to that in a minute because we need to look also then that the very one who is guiding us to that kind of love is also guiding us to that kind of joy. And joy is another one of those things. I think 
the church and the world, all of us as, as Americans, are just confused about. And the reason I know that is, to be quite honest, oftentimes when people think of church, I don't think they think of, oh man, that place is filled with joy. Do you? I don't think people are rushing here to go, woohoo, we think of where's the joy happening? Well, it's happening at the movie theater where I can enjoy a movie. Oh, it's happening at the concert where I can enjoy the concert. Oh, it's happening at the party where I can enjoy the party. In fact, what we'll find in our culture is that joy is contingent upon your circumstance. Isn't that true? And there are people out there who are addicted to chemical joy. And it's growing in our culture. In a culture which is actually more apathetic and despairing because there's no point in living. There's no real purpose in life. You feel guilty for making money because you should be giving it away. There's all of this weight of law that's crushing human beings. We're popping pills just to get ourselves to feel better. We're working our butts off to do weekend warrior kind of stuff so we can end up getting drunk on the weekends to have some joy. We're pouring our into our children as idols so hopefully we can saturate the joy and find ourselves depressed when they move out. Because the world's joy is a momentary thing and in the morning comes regret and depression. At the end of it comes loss and pain and there's a valley at the end of the joy. It's not true joy. It can't be true joy when at the end of it you find absolute despair and hollowness. See, the kind of joy that you're looking at here, this kind of joy that Jesus had, he says, this is the joy, it's my joy, and I want my joy to be complete in you. That's what he says to his disciples. And he's referencing a concept that with God, there's all this great joy. In 1 Chronicles 16, 24 through 25, it's being written, this is a poem about God. It says, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are are in his place. And he says, where God is, there is joy. And so if God has cleaned up the mess between you and him, and you've received what Jesus has done, God's moved into your life. And what's moved into your life is the very God whose joy dwells with him. And we don't think of God as joyful. We think of God as grumpy. Let's be honest, don't we? He's up there in heaven going like, no, no, no. Oh, that, those people, they're very, very bad. Very, very bad people. All you people are very, very bad. And we think God's up there as this killjoy. He don't like anything. He don't want you to drink. don't want you to dance. Don't want you, it's taking away all my chemical joy. Because he wants you to have real joy. If there's a hunger for joy in your soul and we can't seem to find it here on earth, doesn't that mean that there's a solution to it somewhere? What God is calling you to is an eternal joy, a joy that actually in every circumstance, regardless of what you're in, can be tapped into and enjoy. Whether you're sitting there in a manner of circumstance where you are in chronic pain because your body is breaking, you beat it up through sports or whatever it is, or just age has met you and you have OLD. You can tap into this joy. Maybe you're sitting there and it's financial disaster. You're staring at bankruptcy, all the dreams and hopes of your future exhausted. There is no joy in your family because they're all jerks and crazy people. And you think, man, I, I wish it was good, but it's not. And you feel depressed because of who your parents are and what you've suffered and gone through as a child. And there's just no joy at family reunions. There's no joy at Christmas. There's no joy in the poverty. There's still a joy you can tap into that's beyond your circumstance when God dwells in in your life and leads you to be like the one you want to be like. Because 
in this, we find there's a true joy. There's a joy that comes from faith. When Jesus Christ has cleaned up the mess between you and God, and you have a unity with God, and he dwells in you with his joy, you have just had a replacement of the family that may be a mess for you. Everybody finds joy in family, trust me. When that baby is born, when that niece or nephew is born, and they bring him in, there's a joy, isn't there? It's like, it's so cute! I love it! Then it cries, and you're like, not cute! You know, so... But when we see a new family member, we rejoice. Now, guys, think about it. You may be, your family may be dead. They may be gone. Your spouse may, may, be, may be in heaven. You're here. Your mom and dad, gone. You may be in a place where there's tension. But guess what? Your father is in heaven. And he is a good father. He is a loving father. He never leaves you nor abandons you. He is not against you. He is for you. He cares about you. He loves you. This is the God of us as a family. If you've received Jesus Christ and he's cleaned up your mess, you have brothers and sisters surrounding you. You can go to other nations and meet your brother and sister who doesn't speak your language and there's a bond because the spirit of God dwells between you. There is a true joy that your family expands every time we do baptism, each time a person gives their life to Christ. If you give your life to Christ, we celebrate because you become part of our family like you celebrate an adoption or a birth. It is an exciting thing to have such an eternal family that isn't going to get worse. We're all going to get better. This is the worst the family's going to be. And then that leads to another thought. One of the two things that are killing joy in our current culture is the inability for us to stand firm in our faith. In fact, because the culture tells you you shouldn't be confident about the existence of God. You shouldn't be confident that Jesus died for your sins, and so you can't feel like you can have joy about it. But guess what? You can because it's true. And the more firm you are, the more you understand that, the more you believe it, the more the joy comes out. But the second problem is that we've turned heaven into such a small, little thing. I mean, you think heaven's floating around on a little cloud with a bunch of angels surrounding you? Blech, that's horrible. I don't want to go there either. And I'm telling you, receive Jesus and you too shall go into the pearly gates in which you will stand in a church choir for the rest of eternity. I like singing. I don't want to do that. And I heard some of you. I really don't want to do that. I'm just kidding. No, but it gets to that point. There's these mundane small things, guess what? That you worship with. Some of you, you don't worship with song. You worship by getting your hands dirty and forming a pot or pounding wood and cutting a shape and putting it up on your wall and putting shiplap down. You know, that gives you worship to God. Some of you, you get in and you write prose and you write poetry and you want to read it and you want other people to hear it and you enjoy watching their eyes light up. You enjoy watching a student take in a concept and boom, their mind is awake. You enjoy seeing that building come into place and people drive across and you go, I did that. There's a joy in the many, many, many things of life, like a hike up into the hills, like a rock climb, like the vistas of the Yosemite or the depths of the Grand Canyon stirs within you a joy that is incomprehensible because it's the joy that God embedded into you to respond to these things. The sad thing is we think it's all going away and yet it's not. 
if heaven is small to you, these small joys are small and go away. But when heaven is large and you realize Jesus Christ rose from the dead in physical flesh, that he's redeeming not just human bodies like you and me, he's redeeming souls, he's redeeming this universe, that there is an eternal beauty awaiting us and the small minute pieces of partying and joy that we incur and enjoy in this time are never going to end. They're going to grow because heaven ain't boring. It's his place where there is strength and joy. Can you imagine the joy you tap into because it's yours by promise? It's yours by a God who never breaks his promise and given to you by the Jesus Christ who bore your sins on the cross. Though you are his enemy, he loved you and wants his joy to be full in you. And we can have that joy regardless of the circumstances that surround us. That is a response that I think requires some joy. Amen. So where do I get this? Because guess what? I don't have it. Let's be honest. Baseline. I stink at joy. I do. And yet, here's what happens. I don't have it naturally in myself. It's not going to come by a bunch of rules. So I'm just going to tell you guys, take the next step after the Spirit of God. God is leading you to this joy. God is leading you to this love. He is speaking to your soul through the word of God, through sermons, through worship. He's speaking to your soul as you pray to him. He's answering your prayers. There is a conversation going on that is real, bound by scripture. Note that. He's not going to tell you to do something against scripture. In fact, oftentimes he's going to tell you through scripture. And when it's clear, you take that next step. I don't know what that is for you. Some of you, while I was talking about love and talking about the people we don't like and the things that we shouldn't, you know, People we got to love anyway, not because they did anything good to us, just because they're made in God's image. Some of you guys are actually going, I know exactly the next step I'm supposed to take. I know exactly who I'm supposed to invite in my home this week to have a meal with. I know exactly who I need to ask for forgiveness online. I know exactly what I need to do. And you know, the Spirit of God is convicting you right now. Don't ignore that. Write it down and take the next step. Some of us, it's the next step that you, you, you missed. We had, we had all this music happening and all this music was aimed to remind you of the truths of the word of God, to the truths that God has given you, the promises, so that it would evoke in you an emotional response. You see, we, like Mark said, you can't be those people in the movie theater like I am when, when the emotional moment comes and we go, I'm not crying, I'm a rock. Mm. Daddy, why is there a tear in your eye? It's not a tear. I just kept them open the whole time, you know. Whatever your excuse. No, no. See, we don't get the option that when the emotion of God hits you because of the words that we're singing, for you to go, mm, I'm not going to let that out. <sighs> okay, that passed. <sighs> Made it. Because actually, he said, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Both commands, not suggestions. When it comes, rejoice. Let it out. Shout. Scream, celebrate. We're going to sing a song here in a minute. And part of the words are literally, oh, 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 oh. I didn't sing it right, but yeah, that, that's all there is. There's an oh to it. And guess what that means? That's make a joyful noise unto the Lord. You can't sing? Just go, oh, 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 oh. It sounds like a barking dog. I don't know. You just sing. 
Let it out. Rejoice. Don't hold back. The Spirit of God is leading you. Maybe it's that celebration of that person in your office that you didn't celebrate. Maybe it's that moment with your children that you didn't grab onto. Maybe it's just the walk in the park and you see the very leaves clapping their hands to the Lord and you go, ha, huh, I have to join in. I just have to let this out. And you laugh. You smile. You take the next step after joy. You tap into it, even in the midst of the things you, you pull up in your prayer journal. You see it, all the prayer requests that he's answered. And it just fills your soul and you rejoice. Maybe all it looks like is woohoo! And you just stop and think about eternity. You can feel the wind in your face again as you get to run again when you haven't had a chance to run since you were little. And you think, woohoo! Let it out. Take the next step after joy and then do it again. See, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. He's leading you step by step. Just stay behind him. Next step, next step. Where are we going now, Lord? Where are we going now, Lord? Keep your mind on the things of God because he's leading you by his word to that next step. What is that next step? Take it and then do it again. Take it because here's what happened. As you take the joy and love and you keep stepping after it, it shapes inside of you. It begins to transform you. He uses this term of sowing and reaping in Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. If you want to look at it, he just says, guys, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows that he also reaps. Duh. You put corn in the ground, what do you get out? Corn, not a trick question. All our farmers are like, got this one. All of us were like, I don't know, what happens? Popcorn? No. Um, put corn in the ground and up rises corn and more corn. A couple of kernels leads to a bunch of ears and those lead to a bunch of kernels. Whatever you put in the ground comes out of the ground, you get Whatever you put in, the little bit you put in, you get more of. And so he says, let's take that principle. For the one who sows of his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. You sow lust, you'll receive destruction. You sow greed, you're going to receive destruction. You sow gossip, you'll receive destruction. You sow the kind of things that we get obsessed with and body image and all the garbage that we see on television. And some of these, you're going to sow the very things that you pour into your heart. It's going to grow. It's going to be more. Thank you. And what we have now is an opportunity to do the different. The one who sows the spirit from the spirit reaps eternal life. And so you will sow the love that you've received and it will grow love. You sow the joy that you're receiving and it grows more joy. And you take more of it and you take more of it. And what happens is eventually that shapes your character and changes you. This, this old thing that is new, it's kind of popular out there in the business world called a flywheel takes effect. And the old flywheel was crank, you had a crank that you had to turn on this car and as you turned it, you had to get it going and it took more energy and eventually once the energy kicked in it would spin on its own and that's the idea that God's in you energizing you take that first step then you take another step then you take another and suddenly you're going the energy's there the character's happening it's easier to rejoice it's easier to love it's easier to be patient and you just keep letting that develop as you take the next step and the next step and the next step but keeping your eyes open where the Lord God is leading you as you relate to him in conversation, he begins to shape you and shape me with love and joy. And so what I want to do at the, end of, at the end of this is give you guys an opportunity just to take a minute and ask God. 
God, what is that next step that you have for me? And what we're going to do is we're going to practice something that many of us, we, we think about, but maybe we don't take the minute to do, which is to listen. So as you bow your heads, let's take a minute and ask the Lord just that simple question. God, what is the next step for me? And let's listen. He may have already told you, write it down. It may come in a scripture. It may just be an application of what we talked about. Maybe the conviction you've already felt. But right where you are, just in this minute. Ask him and listen. Father, I trust that you are actually working in the hearts of everyone in this room, bringing to mind the things that you're calling them next to in worship or and rejoicing in you or whether it's loving a neighbor. God, help us to take this step. Some of these steps we've neglected for a long time. That's why we haven't been growing spiritually. And so we just pray you just empower us to do it. But we know that it that you will work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. So we pray for that energy and help us to make that step. We surrender ourselves to you today, God. You are so good to make us right with you. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.